It started two years ago with marijuana cigarettes. Come on, it's my turn next. Gee, Duke, where'd you get them? I, uh, I know a guy. Three for a buck. Let me try. Gee, I feel awful funny. Me too. I feel kind of sick. Come on, Marty, pass it on. Marty got kind of sick too, but he wouldn't let on. He was determined to be one of the gang if it killed him. And it almost did. Several weeks later, after smoking reefers, Marty's befogged brain hit on a clever way to open pop bottles. Later, Stan went to the hospital for swallowing broken glass. Marty badly cut the inside of his mouth, though he didn't even know it at the time. Dad does... Dad does... Drugs. Dad does drugs. Hello and welcome to lucky episode number seven of Dad Does Drugs. Lucky for who? For you. This week's guest is great and I've had some coaching to improve my broadcasting from my best mate so we're going to smash it this time. If you follow at Dad Does Drugs on Twitter, thank you. It's my main means of promoting the podcast and finding out what's going on in drug science, drug activism, policy, general narco-nerdiness. And I had a couple of very helpful retweets this week from Boomtown Festival, the focus of last week's episode, and also the best of all, founder Rob DeBank, which helped swell the number of Twitter followers and I hope podcast listeners. So if you're new, hi and thanks. Hello, welcome and hope you enjoy. By far, the best moment on Twitter of the week, though, was unconnected to drugs entirely. My youngest child, my daughter Hattie, who's six, uh, you hear her voice introducing the podcast, spelling it out with her phonics, was wigging out in a very funny sort of mosh pit style on Wednesday morning before school as we listened to six music. I filmed seven seconds of it. I tag the radio station and the breakfast presenter Lauren Laverne in the tweet. She retweets it and boom! We have mini viral excitement. Every time I looked at Twitter, I get a whoosh of dopamine. I check Twitter again. I've got new followers. I've got more likes. I became a social media crack addict for 24 hours. I'm just about levelling out now, but I hope it's the start of building awareness of the podcast. And I'm going to check my Twitter again in a minute and see what's happened. Other good news, I finally found a time in the busy diary of Dr Susie Gage where she can talk to me for this podcast. She's lecturer in psychology, epidemiology, health behaviours and genetic factors at the University of Liverpool. One of her big areas of interest is understanding the associations between substance use and mental health. I heard of Susie because she hosts a fantastic podcast called Say Why to Drugs. I think it was my introduction to listening to drug pods. And there are a number, and hers is one of the best. Each week she takes a different substance, she gives the science and the facts about it. Scroobius Pip, her co-host, uh, talks about the kind of um, what it's like to take it and what the kind of general word on the street is about that kind of drug. It's really good, really listenable. She's very kindly agreed to talk to me about her research, her podcast, the new book she's just finished, which has spun off from the podcast, communication about drugs in general, and a focus on cannabis, which I think most parents probably will anticipate their children at some point will try. They may have mixed views on that, and we've not discussed it so far this series, so I think we should. 
That episode is coming before the end of May. This week, my guest is Felix Bechtelsheimer, frontman of cinematic alt-rock Americana band Curse of Lono. Before that, he was the frontman of Hey Negrita. If the surname rings a bell, his little sister Laura won a dressage gold medal for Team GB at London 2012. But as you'll hear, Felix chose a different path to the pony club Gymkhana circuit. His band, Curse of Lono, are on a UK tour at the moment. Gateshead, Milton Keynes, Edinburgh, Glasgow, Birmingham, Bristol, Cambridge, London, Brighton, Oxford, Southampton. Festivals including Under the Apple Tree in Silverstone and the Llama Tree Festival in Wiltshire. And they have a new LP out on July the 12th. It's called 4AM and Counting and it features sort of paired back, recorded as live versions of some of their songs. I met Felix in November 2018 at the Railway Inn, a well-known small music venue in Winchester, before their gig. We spoke in an upstairs room, they were playing downstairs, we thought that would be quiet. But then the acoustic duo, who were also playing there upstairs, later on arrived very unacoustically, like a clumsy herd of elephants, and kind of crashed through doors, banged guitar cases. Um, That doesn't spoil Felix's stories, and the acoustic duo were very apologetic afterwards, so no hard feelings. Felix's tale is one of teenage isolation, chemical experimentation, rebellion, peer pressure, addiction and recovery. Afterwards, I'll have a chat about it with my son Credence, and I will try and employ a slightly better interview technique, thanks to some advice from my friend Rob, who is an actor, director, all-round excellent person, and he hosts the podcast on his website as well, Nonfiction. So, thanks, Rob. Without you, this would all be a total disaster. Crash into the carpet on my way to Mars. Now I'm shedding my skin again. I need a brand new face and a fresh new taste to run this race over again. Screams of pain from the room next door won't let me be. I'm hiding out in the bathroom now. Drugs, talking drugs <laughs> to keep our children safer. Okay. Strap line. Cool. Because talking I'm, drugs, not taking drugs. Talking drugs, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, 
And I thought you were interesting uh, to talk to. Uh, I'll give a full introduction on the podcast, but um, um, Felix Bechtelsheimer is frontman of Cursive Lono, uh, and they are a band that I found out about because someone said to me, and this is apt, I suppose, for the, for the um, podcast, uh, if you like the band War on Drugs, yeah. then you might like Cursive Lono. And that turned out to be... Uh, exactly the case. I love the band War on Drugs, and uh, and I really enjoyed your album as I fell and uh, and I got it. And, Thank uh, you so much. That's and, a good comparison. I'm, I'm glad that people are comparing us to War on Drugs. That's great. Like that because I'm a big fan as well. Yeah, um, there's a, a real note of Americana and lovely sort of windswept long songs. Yeah, you know, it's nice. yeah, the songs seem to be getting longer with every album I write at the moment. I'm right. not sure if that's a good thing. Uh, well, no, it's really nice, really kind of dreamy kind of rock. Thank uh, you. But, uh, a spoiler alert, um, I found out as well in the course of other interviews that I've heard Felix give that he has been a heroin addict. Yep, a while ago now, luckily, but yeah. And has uh, kicked that addiction. Uh, so maybe I'll start by asking you uh, your your childhood. Yeah. Early childhood was in Germany. Yeah. Uh, so, so I suppose tell me how, how you get from... Uh, being born in Germany to ending up a teenager in the UK? Um, well, I was born in Hamburg and then my parents moved to Frankfurt and I was there till I was nine. And my family all moved away from Germany. Uh, my granddad was a Holocaust survivor and he set up a business over there and did pretty well for himself and sold that in the 80s. And he wanted to move out. My uncle moved to America and my parents moved to England and um, so I started school over here when I was nine and I went to straight into school speaking not a word of English and had to learn very quickly and um, I loved it over here I, I loved it to start with I was sent to boarding school age 13 and that's where problems started for me um, I didn't know anyone there I was the only you know, a lot of my friends at primary school went off to schools with their friends. I was the only one there, and the most exciting thing happened to me that summer, which was the Germany won the World Cup. But when I got there, that ended up being probably the worst thing that could have happened to me. Yeah. Um, so I was bullied very badly at school and started hitting the drink quite quickly. And um, being in a rural boarding school, I didn't think there was a lot of drugs around. Um, so it was a lot of heavy drinking. By the time I was 15, that changed quite quickly. And I, you know, discovered weed and then, you know, I discovered taking, taking acid and stuff occasionally. But it was very much alcohol-related, I think, to start with. Okay. And then uh, when I, I got kicked out of school when I was 17. And when I moved to London to do my A-levels, I remember going to a sixth form college and turning up in the cafeteria in the morning and the first thing I saw was a girl standing on a table going, pills, acid, speed, and a teacher going, shut up, Denise, get down. And this was completely normal. Wow. For me, it was like a kid in a sweet shop. So, yeah, I, I got on it pretty uh, quick. <laughs> I wasn't really aware of drugs as a teenager mm. until uh, I'd gone through university. And by that point, I suppose I'd 
seen enough films and read enough uh, things about rock stars and actors yeah. and things where you had a bit of mythology and it felt mm. exciting. What was there a, a kind of allure or an attraction? Or was oh, it totally. Just... I mean, I wanted to be a musician from when I was what, fourteen years old, and I think things have changed now. But I think back then, every music magazine you picked up, it was Guns and Roses and. All they basically interviewed them about is how much, who drank, how much, and what they, what drugs they did. And Keith Richards would all be about, I did that much, and he's a pussy because he didn't do as much as me. And they're all outdoing each other. There's rumours of bands with Jack Daniels bottles filled with apple juice at the time because you couldn't go up there and drink out of a water bottle. It wasn't cool back then. And all my heroes were off their heads. That was, you know, all of them were. And it's when you're a very impressionable 17-year-old, um, it's very hard to f- f- see the distinction between what the creativity is and what the mythology and the image is. And I personally think that that's changed. Um, right. I think the big bands nowadays, you read the interviews and stuff, no one's talking about what drugs are. It's, it's seen as a bit pathetic to do that. You know, I think it's not. It's no longer cool to brag about stuff like that. Yeah. Whereas in the '90s, that was really cool. If yeah. you didn't talk about the drugs you were doing, you know, that you, you probably weren't a serious artist. And for that sense, a very dangerous message to teenagers, I think. And did you? Um, were you doing music? Did you know you wanted to do music? And you were yeah. good enough to get into a band. How are you? Oh, doing? at the time, I didn't think it mattered how good you were. I thought if you take enough drugs and you're crazy enough. Um, that's that's what people seemed to write about back then. It wasn't about are oh, they read, they play these amazing songs. It's like yeah, and then they did this, and then Jim Morrison did that, and he got naked on stage, and then this guy did that, and then yeah. and then they were passing out, and, they, and it becomes much easier to mimic that behaviour than it does to to write a really really good song. Yeah, you know, and it's I think it's very confusing for for a teenager, and it certainly was for me. And there was older people hanging around when I moved to London. I stayed in a friend's back room because um, I wasn't really talking to my family anymore. And I, they, these friends of mine who were in a band let me stay in their back room on a beanbag. And I think it was the second or third night I was staying there. And a guy w- walked in in the middle of the night in his mid-50s um, in a three-piece suit. And he just shook my hand and said, Hi, I'm Terry. And I lay down on the beanbag next to me and fell asleep. And he was a drug smuggler who was on the run. And <laughs> he, I got to know him very well. I started dealing for him. And I still know him now. He's now 75 years old. And uh, just he got out of prison again a few years ago. Did a, he did, I think, nine years out of an 18-year stint for smuggling again. And he now drives a bus down in Putney. Um, but he had been with the, in prison with the people who did the French Connection. And it suddenly became a really cool thing. You yeah. know? And I, because I wasn't really getting on with my parents. And I didn't get on at school because of the bullying these people became sort of father figures to me in a way and they were people I was looking up to. Yeah. Um, and there was another older guy who was hanging around just to get the young girls but he's the one who got us into heroin and we all thought he was, you know, really cool and he'd seen Bob Marley at Wembley, man, and all this stuff. Right. And it's very easy to get sucked into that. Now looking back, I'm going, what kind of a loser in his late 30s, early 40s, hangs out with 17-year-olds at the pub. Yeah. Whereas at the time, it was like, man, you know, this is this is really cool. Yeah. Um, so just to backtrack a question, so you're, um, you said that you've sort of fallen out with your family. Do you remember any time where anyone talked to you about drugs? Was there any sort of message that came through? My dad said he'd... My mum had never been confronted with it. They came from a little 
rural town in Germany. Mm. Uh, my dad said he'd once been on a camping holiday where someone had smoked some weed. Right. And when my dad first found out that I was smoking weed, he gave me a massive bollocking. And then he said, what's it like? And so for them, it was very simple. Um, it wasn't weed or coke or this or that. It was drugs. Yeah. And you're either on them or you're not. And they, that, it's not, that wasn't their choice to talk about it like that. That's all they knew about it. Yeah. They didn't have any experience with it. And... You know, at school, I remember having a drugs lecture at school, and they said, yeah, and then you'd get chased down the street by a giant strawberry. And we all went in to that lecture, aged 14 or something, going, we'll never take drugs. We came out, we all go, man, we need to get some of this stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, but yeah, with my parents, it wasn't talked about. Right. But you then end up in probably one of the nightmare scenarios for any parent uh, trying heroin. Mm. Uh, how, did, how did you go from kind of party drug lifestyle to trying that? I had a friend um, called Chuck, who was one of these brothers who I lived with, and um, he was always drunk at the weekends, and I was always drunk at the weekends. And when Chuck and I met, we suddenly went like, we could get drunk every night, and then we could. He, I want, I tried whatever. I'd never tried coke, but then this drug dealer guy introduced me to coke. And I was like, oh, this is cool. It's going. Well, I've done acid once. I'd like to do that. And Chuck's like, no problem. Let's do that. And he's going. We should really try some crack. I was like, yeah, let's do that. And then it's maybe. I think we need to do some heroin. And we were just trying to... We were pushing each other, like 17, 18-year-old kids do. Right. And it just became, in a really pathetic way, I suppose, that became our party trick. But it wasn't um, to mask pain or... You know, I think that's why... I think as a 17, 18-year-old, you probably, if you're like I was, you try everything, but you'll find the drug that's right for you. And... Heroin was right for me because it 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 just numbs everything. It's the strongest painkiller known to man, mm. and I was in a lot of I was really just not comfortable with myself or with with life. I think I'd, I'd you know I'd been beaten badly for a long period at school and very isolated at school. I had a whole time where no one would talk to me, and you start boozing and that. That's something, but then once you find heroin, it's just, right. it's a different level. Yeah. You know? And it, and yeah, I fell in love with the world for a brief moment with it, and then it all fell apart. <laughs> you need to stop this. And I got really angry and really stressed out about the conversation and went straight to my dealer. Right. And very suddenly you realize that you get really sick when you don't have it and you just don't really think it's going to happen to you. And suddenly it does. And it then gets quite difficult because once you're really in that, and then it gets very hard to get out, you know, and you start, you do a line, you smoke a bit, and then next thing you're injecting it and... It, it doesn't take long and it's a blur because you're off your head it's a blur suddenly you wake up and it's three months later and right. you know you can't get out of bed 
and it's it's a it's a very difficult one. It took me a very long time to get off it. From I made the decision to come off, and I was um, adamant that I wanted to. I had a friend saying to me that I was the most miserable junkie in London because no one wanted to get high with me. Because all I would talk about was how I wanted to come off it. Right. And I was doing detox after detox. My dad administered a detox at one point. I did it myself. I did, you know, crazy things. I remember driving to. We had. We had a hundred quid left between me and my girlfriend, and um, we took the train to Brighton and booked a, a sort of really cheap bed and breakfast. And we said, "Look, if we're down here, we don't know anyone. When the cold turkey hits, we, we just have to ride it out." Yeah. And uh, yeah, on day two, I jumped a train to London, <laughs> <laughs> spent the rest of the money on smack, jumped the train back, and we then did did the, the drugs and then was stuck and then sort of had to somehow find our way back to life. I don't even remember how we got back, but it just, nothing worked. Yeah. So I think once you're really in it, it's then very hard to get out. And so what age were you when you thought, All right, I will stop? And... Um, I stopped, I wanted to, st I, st I realized that I wanted to, when I was, I'd say 22. Gosh. And, um, so it's it, sort of four years on it. Yeah, and then it took me. I did. I did it for four and a half years. It took me four and a half years in the okay. end. And um, I came off. 18th of June, uh, 2000 was the last time. And my my uncle lived out in America. He was the black sheep in the family. No one talked to him. And he suddenly called up and started chatting to my parents. And he heard that about my problems. And he said, "I'll oh, get get Felix to move out here with me." And they were going, "But you're a filthy alcoholic. This is crazy." <laughs> And my parents were going, this is madness. And he, he, but he called me and I hadn't spoken to him in 10 years. And he said, look, come out here, just get away from it all. And I did that and I had my last hit at Heathrow Airport. I nearly missed the plane. Right. I in a toilet cubicle. <laughs> and that was 18th of June, 2000. Okay. Yeah. Um, and how, how are relations with your family? Very good. Yeah. Very good. They were very supportive once I did the right thing. And my parents were trying to be supportive anyway because they could see I was trying. They didn't, you know, they could see I was desperate. Yeah. And I checked out, I checked into a mental hospital in Germany to do a government funded experiment on opiate addiction because there was nothing else that worked for me. Yeah. And my dad's a doctor, you know, he was watching this, he was going, I can see how hard you're trying, but it was heartbreaking for them, you know. And you've done work since with addicts weren't you yeah we did um, we worked with a charity called RAP to take addiction treatment into prisons with my old band with Haina Greta we did that and I still um, I try and help people out who are trying to find the way sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't I've just been trying to help a friend of mine's husband out and it's not looking good at all unfortunately um, you know got drive down there talk to them and try and explain to them what to expect when you go into detox rehab program whatever it might be just you know so many different ways of doing these things nowadays and sometimes you can help someone a little bit and sometimes you can't yeah um and since that um point in the year 2000 how has the how's your relationship to drugs been you know how do you sort of view them and how do you find being around people you're still in music and it doesn't bother me I mean I don't, don't drugs aren't a problem you know it's what you do with them I've got friends who, when I first took heroin the first few times there's friends of mine who were there and had a taste and that was it and they'll still do it every year or so they'll have a little bit they're not going to inject it they're going to do a little line they've got friends who who, who can sensibly 
do a bit of freebasing at the weekend, if that's even possible, I don't know. They say they can. It's not my problem, you yeah. know. It's I know what I can handle. I know what, like tonight, we're playing a gig. I love beer, but I've learned on our last tour, not with anything bad happening, I just suddenly realized that I'm actually a little bit sharper on stage if I haven't had a drink. And I'm fine if everything's going well, but if there's a slight technical issue or something, and I'm two pints down, I'm going to be a little bit slower to react. So now I don't have a drink until I'm off stage. Right. You know, it's little things like that. And you just have to work that stuff out. I don't hate drugs. I think drugs are there for a reason. People have been drinking for a very long time and people have been using things. I, I don't know. I don't think telling people what they should or shouldn't do really works that well. Well, yeah. it doesn't seem to have done uh, prohibition. It hasn't no, worked. It's, it's never. It's always had a backlash to it. And I think... You know, people need to work out for themselves what they can and can't do. I think the media is responsible for certain things. And I think, you know, what the media was doing in the 90s with really promoting all this, promoting all this, um, you know, people getting off their heads and all that sort of stuff um, is was probably not a good idea. And I think, you know, we need to be responsible. I, I do agree that it's the message we send to the kids is important and if you glamorize this stuff and build these great myths around you know um, the jazz musicians and Keith Richards and Johnny Thunders and all of that stuff that's going to be damaging but if you look I think we've already crossed that hurdle they don't they, you don't hear about Mumford and Sons getting off their nut and when you hear about a band getting obnoxious and drunk and being rude to everyone people go well, we're not really into that anymore. No. You know? So I think they've sort of, we've, we've crossed the first, we've, we've got over the first hurdle. Yes. Um, but yeah. like you, what you're saying now is how we talk to our kids and stuff. I think that's, that's the, the next level that we need to be, you know, we need to be responsible for. Yeah, I think, I think um, you know, drug use amongst young people is still, it's, it's what they do, you know. Yeah. Uh, people go, to, although the bands, like you say, may, may not have a, an image around lots of drug use people go to festivals i think yeah. primarily to stand in a field and take some drugs mm. uh whilst listening to good music yeah and what, what their drug of or bad music even <laughs> Maybe, yeah uh whether it's legal or illegal but i think you know all the festivals know that people are bringing in all yeah. sorts so people people want to do it and the government saying it's illegal doesn't seem to stop them doing it yeah. so i suppose what we as parents and just sort of uh, thinking how well, how how do you communicate uh, a way of um, being re reasonably safe and responsible and looking after your mates? I mean, how how will you your children are very young at the moment? How, how do you think you'll cross some of those hurdles as they grow up? I don't know. To be honest, I think it's really hard to. I hope that I'll be honest with them. Um, I don't want to just lie about it and say it's all bad. It's all bad because. Kids are smarter than that, and if it was all bad, why would anyone do it? Um, my brother's one of these, it's all bad all the time. And I said, well, it's probably not true. I said, if you take MDMA, you're gonna have a much better night than if you just go out for a few pints. You'll definitely feel worse tomorrow and the next day, but you'll have a bet, and he goes, no, even that's not true. It's all rubbish. And I said, well, then why would people do it? Yeah. And I think you need to be honest with them, and you need to be honest with them about the dangers, but also the, the positives, because I think only if you're honest and give them a balanced 
account of it and if you're honest with them about other stuff too then they'll learn to trust you hopefully but how that's going to work out i don't know no and and for you now um you know you've got kids and you're, you told me you're planning your tour around making sure that you can get back home for the kids you're obviously mm. sort of happy um happy father and yep. uh you seem like a very intelligent and well-balanced guy so um lots of um time has passed since yep. that that low point so uh, did, did you have to sort of sort out a lot of your pain misery about the, yeah. the school days before yes. you could move on yeah i mean i think um yes no doubt there was an awful lot of work that needed to be done and i think that you, you choose how much work you want to do on yourself i think you can do the minimum amount and maybe just stay sober or straight or you can do more i don't think if i i, I did as much as i possibly could and i don't think you ever stop doing that i think there's two types of people in the world, those who are working on their shit and those who aren't. And for me, if I hadn't done that work, I wouldn't be able to have beers with my friends now because yeah. none of my other friends who I got clean with can do that. Yeah. But that's because I spent 18 years really working on that stuff. And a lot of the people who ran the halfway houses and the sober houses and the detox wards and the rehabs I went to have died since from relapsing and overdosing. So they laughed at me back then and I said I can have a beer I'm not laughing at them now but I'm sitting there going man I don't see your road being any any safer than what I'm doing and I'm you know I've been I've been like this now for 18 years and but yes it takes an awful lot of work and it's it takes no work at all to get into it but it takes one hell of a lot to climb out yeah well I mean I started smoking a stupidly late age after mm. I'd finished university mm. and uh, you know I'd been a sports science student so I was mm. kind of fit and healthy and then started smoking and then when I'm sort of 37 and I'm trying to give up I'm thinking I see, you know why have I been smoking for 15 years yeah. it, you know uh, I didn't really, I, you know I never really wanted to smoke but you just start you, yeah you fall into these it. things and you don't take them seriously and then suddenly what I found was very difficult with the with, with drugs like heroin is that you get into that scene and people your friends will start dying around you and that's something you don't think about back then you go yeah whatever mm. it's never going to happen most of my friends from back then are dead now most of them are dead Gosh. and there's one or two who've completely lost their marbles um for various other reasons as well but there's there's none of them left there's no one left who i can have a conversation with wow. and you know that's Okay, you don't hang out with. I mean, you're not the most sociable person when you're doing that. So it's not that many people. Yeah. You know, but it's. Yeah, there's. I mean, it it it's a. You don't you don't think these things through at that age. Yeah. You know. It does sound like you've had an unusually unusual unusual route in that you don't seem to have spoilt all of the fun in life for yourself. You can still enjoy a beer. No, like I'm, no, you my life is. And, my life is so much more fun now. We you know we tour the we tour the world with this band. You know, and we, they're my best mates. And my favorite person to hang out with is my wife and my kids. So I've, I'm, now I'm the, definitely the luckiest person I know. Um, it's taken some time to get there, but I think, you know, we all have our, everyone has their cross to bear. And at some point you just have to either go for it and you don't. And I'm incredibly lucky because a lot of people who try to do the work just didn't make it, you know? Yeah. And um, if you were looking back you know, the, at the young you, the, the 16, 17 year old you, um, do you look back and think, 
uh, I was I was stupid. I was an idiot. What did I do that for? Or I was in, you, I was do in. You look back more compassionately than that. I do. I'm very lucky that I got out of it, but it was there was a lot of stupidity. But I was, I was so scared of the world because because of what happened to me at school that I just didn't really, I didn't have the tools to deal with it. I didn't, I didn't know how else to deal with stuff. And I found one thing I was good at, and that was getting fucked up. So I, I did a lot of that, yeah. you know. And people laughed and thought it was funny. Even at school, I'd be rolling up with a hangover every morning. No one else was drinking, you know. Passing out and doing stupid stuff, and everyone thought it was really funny. Yeah, look at him, right. and um, and it's it, that's that stuff's really important when you're 16 years old. Yeah, you know. So who was it the other day who said to me when I was when I was 15 or 16? I thought I didn't care about anything, and I, looking back now, I realised I cared more than I ever should have done back there, more than I ever did in any other time in my life. Yeah, you know. And I think it's. It was just, it was what it was. And I don't, do I regret it to a point, but in another way, it's just what, that's just what happened, you know? And it's, I write songs about it now. Yeah. So, yeah. And they're good to listen to. Thank so, you. Um, thanks ever so much for your time. Thanks thank for you. So thank you so much. Open, uh, um, I think it'll be really useful for people to hear. Awesome. So thank you. Awesome. Much. Thank you so much. So, tell me about your thoughts on Felix. Um, I enjoyed that one a lot. Um, um, what to say? What to say? What to say? I can say whatever you like. What did you make of him? Uh, I quite liked him. Um, I quite enjoyed like just the um, talk about all the different things he tries to do to like detox from it, but like just like like when she was trying to go to a and b yeah and then um was it like straight the next morning he was on the train straight back no yeah. he'd driven away wasn't he yeah uh yeah that he went to brighton or something didn't he jumped, yeah, yeah. jumped the train because he didn't want to spend his money on a train ticket because he wanted to use it to buy drugs once he got back to london yeah tell me what you thought about his school days and the sort of the way he the way he was at school yeah i find it interesting like the way like um he was like one of the few kids who got away drunk. One of the people weren't drinking and things. Um, yeah, and he was sort of acting the uh, kind of it was his party trick. Yeah, yeah. And I think even saying, when yeah. he was at school, he was like he said he was the one that was getting laughs because he was drunk. And then when he teamed up with the other guy, when he'd been kicked out of school, yeah, their party trick came, became sort of trying more and more drugs. Hmm. Are there kids at school? who maybe not through drink and drugs but their their act their way of you know everyone liking them or finding them funny is to mess about play up yeah I suppose. it's a bit annoying though are there sort of scenarios like that where those kind of kids just dominate the class and stuff yeah could you see a, a point where they end up being pushing it further and further do you think that sort of scenario is likely? Yeah, definitely. They just kind of like keep going with things until like then things get out of hand, and then it's just kind of stupid. Yeah.
we have a few, uh, well sometimes they're arguments, sometimes they're just uh, disagreements, uh, conversations, debates about the addictiveness of uh, your Xbox or uh, screens mm. in general. And I worry, I suppose, that they are like, I mean, I don't know what the consequences of childhood sort of use of loads of screens would be. Obviously, there's not a, a physical addiction to it and there's not a, um, you're not going to have health problems in the same way mm. that you might do if you were smoking cigarettes or something like that. But uh, it's interesting how I think that the, the sort of signs of dependency or a slight addiction, I think I think I can notice them in, in you. You know, you, you will panic at the prospect of having no phone contact or no Xbox for an evening, mm. wouldn't you? And, and I think the way um, Felix talked about when he goes to Brighton and then thinks, yeah, yeah, I'll be fine, I'll be fine, I'll go there and that, that'll help us detox. And then he's there and like, Oh, mm-hmm. need to go back again because addiction or a dependency just takes over in a way that you probably yeah don't re- you don't realise how addicted you are, do you? Until until you're without it. I like like the way you deal with it at the end. It was like going to that guy. Like I remember, it was like last year. It was like in the um, Lou of Heathrow before we went to go see. It's like was it cousin? Uh, it was uncle, I think. Uncle. Yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to give up smoking when you were born. And then I wanted to give up smoking when Coco was born. And then I wanted to give up smoking when Hattie was born. And I finally managed it when Hattie was born. And the sort of trying to give up something that has an addictive quality to it sometimes takes you a few goes, I think. Yeah. And maybe by that point, he he was just sort of so fed up with the addiction. and Yeah. Got to that point where, right, I'm serious this time. I'm definitely going to do it. And then the... The ability to get away from it all and go and stay with a rich uncle somewhere else is pretty helpful, isn't it? Yeah. Then, to get you out of it. You got eyes that shine right back at me. Have you heard of heroin? I mean, we've talked about it a bit, but yeah, I know a bit. Like, what's it called? The comedy um, about that guy in the Esther. Um, oh yeah, Afterlife. Afterlife, yeah. Yes, yes. So yeah, the one of the characters in that is uh, heroin, heroin addict, isn't he? And it's heroin is usually it's a painkiller, so people take it obviously for physical pain. It's, you can get prescribed it in hospital and things, and and it tends to like Felix said, people try it as a recreational drug, and if they are hurting a bit like he was, you know, from the from the bullying and the loneliness. It sounded awful, his school mm. days, didn't you think? Do you recognise any of that sort of school life from your school? You know, is it, are, there, are there kids, do you think, that have that kind of isolated, lonely, bullied uh, experience of school? Um, not any I'm close to it, I think. I think boarding school must be hard, for one, because you've got no... Escape. Yeah. yeah, no escape, no home to go to later. And then um, the fact that he was German in in an English boarding school. Yeah. Just at the age when people are really picking on other kids and stuff, 13, mm. 14. I think he's my age, so 
that World Cup that he's talking about when Germany won it was 1990 because hmm. England got to the semi-final and we all felt that we were going to win it and then we lost and then the Germans won it. We lost to Germany on penalties. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's the famous, uh, yeah, one of the big famous penalty shootouts that we lost. So I'm sure for then a German kid to turn up at an English boarding school. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure it was horrible. But yeah, so he's masking his pain with heroin and people try heroin and then it, and then it, they find that they just don't feel any of that pain. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That sort of physical or um, or mental. I found it funny when we used to call that like, um, drug education video um, where it's like, oh yeah, so we go in there thinking, oh, we're, not gonna, we're never going to do drugs because you're off the first video of like, saying, oh, you do drugs, you see a strawberry coming down the road. He's like, are they wanted to do drugs? Yeah. Well, I, I worry about this this podcast, you know, a bit. I, I sort of feel like I want to tell you about the effects of drugs and things to, in order that you understand them and, and, and have knowledge so that you don't come to any harm. But also there is that risk of slightly glorifying them or telling you about things that otherwise you wouldn't have known about and then you go, hmm, that sounds interesting so yeah. um there is a yeah a bit of a funny balance to take with that and some drugs are just relatively speaking they're not that harmful to experiment with so no one's ever died of a cannabis overdose so if you know if, yeah. if you try some cannabis yeah you're not going to drop dead from it but mm. heroin is one of those drugs that like i said to felix it's like the parents' nightmare that I'm sure his parents are like. You know, that is, I think crack and heroin are the two drugs you just wouldn't want your children to ever try because yeah. it's it's really physically addictive. That that so it's this massive painkiller. But then when you try and stop using it, if you've been using it regularly, you phys- feel physically sick. And, yeah. Uh, and that, that you know that's the the feeling that sent him running back to London jumping the train to get yeah, more because yeah. it's just oh, you know an unpleasant your skin's crawling you're fidgety you're sweating yeah. you're being sick probably it's a, a an actual physical sickness that you have mm-hmm. to go through for probably a couple of weeks if you've been using for four years like he had um so that's pretty that's pretty tough to break through that and then after you've after you've broken through that couple of weeks period just the the habit that you were in of using heroin and the friends that you were with who used mm-hmm. heroin with you you've got to kind of get out of all of that yeah he was saying um about like his at the end his friends that he knew from doing heroin yeah they're like half most of them were dead and the ones that weren't he couldn't have an actual conversation with because they're like mental well yeah um yeah it was really a scary thought wasn't it really sobering the rate of drug deaths at the moment about 2,000 people in the UK die every year of heroin overdoses. And a lot of those are Felix and my sort of age. For, that's the biggest age bracket, 40 to 49 adults dying of heroin overdoses. It, um, it's more common in that age bracket than it is in any other. It's not kids trying it. It's kind of older addicts that haven't yeah. yet kicked it. And because you're buying it illegally sometimes you'll get a strong batch sometimes you'll get a, a weak batch you don't know you know it's, it's never the same so it, the danger comes if you've particularly if you've been trying to kick your habit haven't used it in a while 
and then you relapse, you go and buy some more heroin and it happens to be a strong batch and you take too much and then yeah and then that can that can kill you yeah so um don't try heroin all right <laughs> uh, that's that's a good take home message one of the arguments that's always been said about drugs and why even cannabis shouldn't be legalized is that people say it's like a gateway drug so mm. You try a bit of that and then the next time you'll try something stronger and the next time you'll try something even stronger and before you know it you're a heroin addict sleeping on the street and that's been disproved you know that there mm. is there are plenty of people who smoked cannabis for years and years and years who have absolutely no intention of taking anything stronger and are perfectly happy doing their jobs and aren't heroin addicts sleeping on the street so that yeah. that doesn't happen to people commonly and it doesn't happen automatically you try one and then you'll try another. But what happens is it's not legalised too, doesn't it? So it's like... Yeah, yeah. People don't want it legalised because they feel like, yeah, it would be a slippery slope. You'd start on one thing and then you'd want a bigger high and a different high and you'd keep experimenting. But um, what's interesting is it did sort of happen for Felix in that way. Yeah, he's like, went through them all. He did, yeah. But I think that's the exception more than the rule, I think. I think yeah. He was in a bit of a kind of crazy place. Not many people would be. A, he comes from a wealthy family, so I think he sort of always had that idea that he didn't really need to do a job, you know, he could just kind yeah. of keep mucking about. And also, yeah, he was a bit damaged from all the bullying and loneliness that led him to just hmm. be a bit self-destructive and chaotic. But another person that I speak to on another episode, her son... So she's a professor um, at a university, talks about politics and talks a bit about drug, the drug trade internationally and things. But her son was a cannabis smoker and he went to his dealer one day and he didn't have cannabis. And so, and his dealer said, do you want to try some heroin? And he went, oh, okay, I'll try that instead. And ended up being, becoming a heroin addict. So uh, I guess it can Is his son still alive? Yes, but he's in prison. So... Uh, oh. He hasn't had a great, a great run of things since he got addicted to heroin. So, mm. well, that thing with the um, cannabis and the heroin thing wouldn't have happened if um, only cannabis was legalised. Oh. Wouldn't have gone to the pharmacist they say can I have some cannabis and we haven't got any in stock on some heroin. No, yes, you're right. That wouldn't happen, would it? And I think the way most people who talk about legalisation want it to happen is something like cannabis just sell it you know in shops or what have you hmm. uh, but heroin well you're never going to legalize that to make it available in shops but you would legalize it to give it to addicts via the doctor so instead of making they actually come down off it like with yes and, and, yeah and but rather than making them criminals hmm. and making them have to go to a dealer to get it help them get off it by giving it to them and then, like you say, let them gradually, hmm. like I did with cigarettes, you gradually come to a point where you just, I, I'm not going to do it anymore. I know, you know, I've done it for long enough. I just want hmm. to stop. Yeah. Next week, 
Um, I'm not sure yet whether to have a chat with you uh, and your sister or just have a chat with Coco about drugs. I'm talking to a mum whose daughter died at Mutiny Festival last year in Portsmouth. And so I thought I might have a chat. We've probably covered similar stuff already. Yeah, we talked to... You've already listened to one mum who lost a daughter, so um, it's pretty hard going. Uh, But I might uh, have a chat with uh, Coco about girls and drugs. Is she going to listen to it or not? I don't know. Might be a bit heavy for an 11-year-old. So I think I might spare her listening to that and... um, and just have a chat with her, see what she knows. And there was one episode of Riverdale that she watched where one of the mums was selling drugs to some of the characters. Mm. So um, uh, so she's heard of drugs, but obviously wouldn't be quite as aware of real drugs as you are. Thanks for doing this one. Yeah. Oh, my time is done. Tell me about your love.